Welcome to Ideology. McMurray here with Drew Stedman in 2024. Hard to believe, Drew. Did you guys have a guys have a good break? We did. We intentionally didn't do much, and so had a great time here in Waco. Enjoyed the beautiful weather, and uh, I personally, it was great to unwind for a couple of weeks. I just had a pretty full fall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same here. We didn't travel, which we normally do, and that made for a good kind of recharge, refreshing time as a family. Uh, we're excited about what is coming up in 2024. We're going to jump right in and just announce that we are going to be doing a book study uh, together. So not just Drew and I, uh, a book that we haven't read yet, but inviting in the ideology community. Uh, and we want to talk about that here briefly before we jump into our topic today. So Drew, why don't you tee up the uh, book study we're going to be doing? So the book, the author is James K.A. Smith, and he has been referenced by us many times. And the book title is How Not to Be Secular. And this book is really, in many ways, my understanding, I haven't read it yet, but my understanding is it's a summary of a lot of Charles Taylor's material. And um, Smith is pulling that in and then also offering some suggestions based upon that. So I think it'll be a great book for us. It's not that long. It's 160 pages. So a lot of the stuff that we have referenced, especially like Taylor's writing or others, is pretty dense, and I've heard this is a great summary, so thanks, Chris Jolly, for the tip. Um, heard it's a good summary, heard it's accessible, heard it's something that could be um, good for us. So now neither of us have read it, so that's going to be interesting that we're going to be learning together with everyone else as far as, you know, I don't know yet if it's, are we going to just like agree with everything, and we might critique some thoughts. Um, we'd love to hear, you know, different listeners, if you jump in with us, send in your questions, stuff you like, stuff you don't like. Uh, we really do want to view this as a as a community book study, and uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say for those of you who are not able to pick up the book, no shame. We're not going to call you out. Mm-hmm. I, I do think these episodes will be just as applicable to you. So if you have joined us in the past where we went through Carl Truman's book or Nancy Piercy's, it should feel very similar to that. You're going to you know get some of the high-level overview but for others who you want to dive in a bit more, this could be a great uh, intro book to some of the topics that we discuss, and I, I think it will be just a bit more relevant or fun, you know, if you if you are able to read with us. Um, hopefully, what we're able to dialogue fits more your own reading, and then we'll do some stuff on social media as well. I'm not going to promise this, but if anyone out there would be interested, I've toyed with the idea of doing some kind of live event. Um, I don't know that means live in person. I guess if there's enough of you in Waco, we could figure it out somehow. But I, I don't know if I want you to. We just had some terrible bloopers going into this. This is our third take on today's episode. So maybe not live in the sense you actually get to be in the room with us, but maybe like an Instagram live. I don't know. We'll let the people decide. So people email decide. our account. Mick, what is it? Uh, ideologypc at gmail.com. If you would be open or interested in doing something live, whether virtual or, dare I say, in person, um, we we will consider that and see if that could work its way in here. We're just trying to do something that is unique and different. And uh, for those who are around last summer, we, we took some time to take a step back of, of just what do we do as we are now in season four. And so this is one of the ideas, new for us, but I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And I'm personally excited about it and excited to learn with all of you. Mm-hmm. And this caters to those who follow this podcast in real time. So this episode will be releasing on January 8th, which means we'll likely pick up the book review starting January 20, what would that be, 22nd. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got a couple of weeks to get the book and read the first chapter or two. We haven't nailed down exactly the pace at which we're going to do the book. So follow us on Instagram uh, and we'll post that there and we'll talk about this next week as well. Uh, with that, let's uh, let's dive into our first topic of the year, looking at the church. Drew, what are we, what are we looking at today? 
So in many ways, our topic today is teeing up the book that we're going to do. Uh, earlier this season, we, we introduced the whole season by looking at secularism, and so we offered our own thoughts on that over the course of, I don't know, four or five episodes. Um, we're going to let James K. Smith guide us through that you know, via Charles Taylor um, here in a bit and get their take on it. But I, I thought what we could do today is take a step back and ask the question, where are we as the church in America? And the reason why I'm wanting to ask this is there are a lot of narratives that are out there of how to understand religious identity, change, and affiliation. And what's problematic, at least from my vantage point, anytime you have data and surveys, you interpret that through some type of of narrative framework, and we all do it. And so one group of people might interpret a set of data, and they see one clear story, and another group of people can see a different story. And then on top of that, you have different groups that are that are surveying, and it's really tricky. You know, I could ask a question to you, Mick. I could ask you, are you a born-again Christian? And then I could follow up in a second survey and ask you if you're an evangelical Christian. And I might get very different answers. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just people are unpredictable, especially on stuff that is is more qualitative and not quantitative. And so, you know, it, it's it's a complex topic, and there are a lot of people that have offered a variety of different opinions. Now, where I think this is important for us is if we don't understand what's happening on a macro level, and if we don't have maybe some awareness of the drivers behind it, it's very difficult to then chart our path forward. So even as we get into this book about how to not be secular and you know our broader theme of what does it mean to be a vibrant Christian witness, if we have misdiagnosed what's happening, then there's a chance that we're going to be pursuing solutions that are fixing the wrong problem. And I'm not claiming any answers to this. Really, my goal at the end of this episode would be if we can all have a healthy skepticism the next time a survey comes out and say that I'm not totally sure that that thing I read on social media is the full or right interpretation of religious data in America. That alone is probably worthwhile. I think we're all in danger of some naive assumptions of things that are probably more complicated than they really are. But I do think there might be enough in there that we can at least point to some trends that we could say with confidence and maybe a few other things that we could hold open and say we just don't know. But all that bears in mind to the broader question of how does the church respond to the rise of secularism in religious change. Mm -hmm. And I think um, when I, before looking at the data, what seems to be just maybe um, common understanding of the church trends would be general decline, right? Mm -hmm. That... Uh, especially coming out of COVID, that there has been a mass exodus from the church. So is that what's is that bearing out in the data? Yeah, there's a so what, what's challenging with that is what is decline. So there is absolutely a decline in the number of people attending religious services weekly, and there is a decline in the number of people who self-identify as various forms of Christian. So that's I think pretty uncontroversial that those two things are there. But what story does that tell? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think there are stories that I've heard where the decline is predominantly evangelicalism, or a lot of it gets into various identity groups and how they perceive the label evangelical. Um, a lot of it is tied to political narratives that go on. And, you know, in all these, there's both truth and complexity, right? And so that's what makes it um, so tough. So I'll, I'll start with what is the, the most clear-cut and the most obvious. Now, I'm, I'm going to highlight a guy named Ryan Burge, who's like a um, he is an academic, but he's also um, quite popular. He has an account on um, Twitter 
or whatever they call that today. Um, but he also writes for a variety of different organizations. Um, and so he, he's done a lot of like aggregate. I think he's at Eastern Illinois is where he um, works. Um, you know, Barna's survey data is pretty popular. There's a guy named Mark Chavez that um, maybe more in an academic setting writes on stuff. I'm not pulling from his data as much. Going back a little further, um, actually Baylor's ISR, Institute of Sociology of Religion, I think is top notch. And um, different guys like Rodney Stark, yeah, say Rodney Stark. Uh, is one of my favorites. I'll, I'll cite him here in a little bit. Ed Stetzer, the dean at Talbot, um, he, he does a lot on this as well. Um, a guy named Daniel Yang, who was formerly with the Billy Graham Institute at Wheaton. So there's a lot of different people. And you know, so some of this is I'm pulling just from a variety of stuff. So I'm trying to cite names of people that at some point or another, I read something of theirs. I can't exactly mm-hmm. chart which thing I got from where. Um, but then um, Ryan Burgess stuff is... Uh, maybe a bit more recent, and um, and I can. I always like to figure out like what survey did he take this from. I will give the dis- disclaimer: I have not gone through. I'm not a statistician. I mean, I know enough to be dangerous, but I'm not one. Um, so I typically, when I read somebody post something, I like I like to go look at least what the data was at one level, or did they get it from a reputable source? And you know, there's some that are um, reputable, and others that are like an internet survey that you mm-hmm. just can't trust mm-hmm. at all. But um, I'm also not a sociologist, um, and nor do I do these type of surveys myself. I don't have a formal degree in statistics. And that gets into the com- complex, problematic nature of all of this. It's just really easy to misread things. And let me stop you there for a moment and just comment on a kind of a research methodology that you just uh, talked about. And, and I think in an age of, of so much information available to us on the internet, um, I, it, I was not trained in how to research well, and I have had to learn as I've gone, and I'm continuing to learn. And I think we would just make a plug. You, you talked about these academic sources, and I think uh, for a long time I kind of turned my nose up at academic mm-hmm. so- sources until I realized that the academic process involves this peer review component of it where you know, for something to be published academically, it has to pass through a number of sets of hands and minds and go through this process where a lot of people are, are getting eyes on it. It's not a foolproof process, but it does weed out some of the um, undisciplined or out there ideas compared to you know something that you find on the internet that just passed through one person's mind and has not been peer reviewed. And I think that's where this, you know, get off, get off, really get off the rails and just complete falsehood. But um, even well-meaning individuals who've tried to be rigorous in their uh, in their study, there's just something about getting multiple sets of eyes on it. And so, if you hear us talking about these academic sources, there's a reason that Drew, you're you're digging into more of these academic sources because it's, you're going to have dozens, if not hundreds, of people's input by the time something is peer-reviewed and published. Yeah, and that's on this one. You know, part of me saying this is I haven't actually gone through all the academic stuff. I, these are academic people. Um, but I, you know, so I, I like to just say that outright, you know, versus something we actually have looked at. I and mean, really, if we're doing it, you're looking at trying to um, create some kind of scope around your research question and hitting most, if not all, of the relevant mm-hmm. um, research that's out there on the topic. You know, that would be like a formal academic. Um, but in this case, you know, what I'm at least doing and, yeah, I would advocate for is at least know the person you're listening to and what their credentials are. Mm-hmm. Um, are they trained in this area? What are they referencing? Um, are they drawing from something? You know, all of us are, you know, even the fact of somebody listening to this podcast is trust is implicit to this. So you have to trust somebody ultimately. Um, but there is a lot of bad information on the internet. And I, I think a lot of times what happens is someone, we all do this. So I, I do this too. I, you know, I, I don't want to frame this as 
everyone else is bad. I think this is native to who we are as people. We live in a thought world where there's a controlling narrative of our mind of how the world is. And that's shaped by our own experience, by our community, and a variety of factors. And so then what we do is we take information and we filter it through our narrative. And the danger of that is the world is much more complicated always than the narratives that we have and we want to give to it. And so that means on something maybe that we feel is exciting or really passionate about, it's probably more complicated than you think it is. Mm -hmm. But the, the other side of it is something that seems concerning and you're pessimistic about. There's actually probably um, more glimmers of hope than you think there are as mm -hmm. well. And so that cuts both ways. And that's what helps me. And you know, when I hear things, I just always like to figure out where are they getting this information from? Who's talking to me? What background do they have in this? And you know, why are they talking? And that can range. There's good non-academic sources of people that I would trust. And the people I mentioned are all in that camp. Um, they're actually, they're all academic people. I'm, I'm saying my own research for, for it as far as something that they might write on a blog versus a published article, which they all have as well. Um, but there's that, you know, somebody who I know I can trust from an academic level, they might write something on the internet that's not peer reviewed, but it, it's somebody that I would, you know, I, I think is knowledgeable. And then there's stuff where it's fine. It doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. I'm just gonna be more skeptical about where they drew that from. Mm -hmm. And a lot of where I actually think the greatest danger is, is cross discipline. So maybe somebody who's writing about politics, who is interpreting survey data about religion, that's happening all the time right now, because the term evangelical has gotten so caught up in political um, surveys, right? And so it doesn't mean that they're wrong when they're interpreting from a political standpoint, but when that same person turns around and tries to be an expert on religious survey data, you know, we should at least ask some questions. And I've seen some pretty bad takes out there from smart people, but it just was obvious they didn't understand something they were talking about, even though I'm sure they're quite qualified in other areas. That's great. So I took us down a rabbit trail, but uh, so going back to the data, what what are you seeing as you well, look Well, and it's a, it's a good rabbit trail because I think a lot of what I'm trying to say is I'm not convinced anyone has a great handle on what's actually happening right now. So, um, you know, I, I think your rabbit trail just underscored that point. So here's what I think is most obvious is that mainline Protestantism is rapidly declining. And this is a trend, um, you know, one of uh, Burge's stats was that the Episcopal Church has cut in half in the last 13 years the number of people attending weekly worship services. And the average age, or I'm sorry, not the average age, but more than half of the current attendees are over the age of 65. And that just plays out. Um, that, you know, the data for the United Methodist Church was like, I mean, a 33% decline or something crazy like that of um, uh, people attending. And that was before the split with the GMC, um, which is a recent news item, which will just, you know, make mm -hmm. that problem significantly worse. So the, the main denominations, when you think of mainline Protestantism. So the PCUSA, Episcopal Church, um, United Methodist Church, um, uh, that was Evangelical Lutheran. Um, you know, uh, several of those different churches would be considered historic mainline Protestants. And these were, a lot of these are the Protestant denominations that were, uh, you know, key church institutions going back to the near founding of the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's a good way to think of it. And if you think of whatever, uh, you know, maybe normal Christian would have been 60 years ago, um, these are the groups that, you know, would leap to the imaginations, the one that have the large churches in downtowns that are really pretty, you mm -hmm, know, like mm -hmm. those kind of churches with big endowments, the ones that started most of the historic prestigious seminaries in the United States, you know, that type of information or that type of situation. Mm -hmm. So that's mainline Protestant. Most of them are theologically liberal and most of them have been in a hundred plus year decline. And, and so Rodney Stark looks at this in his book, The Churching of America. 
And I, he has a thesis that I think absolutely holds true, and that is that over time, churches seek to reduce tension with the surrounding culture. So a lot of mainline Protestants, there is no tension with the surrounding culture. They are the surrounding culture. That's where if you were the elite of a city, you would go to one of those churches and you would not feel a tension in your communal involvement in the surrounding culture um, compared to your church mm-hmm. involvement. So there, there's not a tension necessarily to manage, but what happens is they, they tend to decline over time. And so Stark, in his research, he looks at, um, he uses the word market share, which I don't love, but he's kind of taking of, you know, relative to the population of the United States, what percentage of people go to these churches. And, you know, there has been a long-term, you know, like I said, 100 century long decline in all of these churches. However, the the actual attendance started declining, I think, in the 60s in a lot of them. So Mm -hmm. they would still increase the number of people going, but that number was a diminishing percentage of the total population. So the country was growing much faster than the churches. And then it finally reached a tipping point where the churches themselves, they weren't just not keeping up with population growth, but they're actually shrinking. Now they're aging and shrinking rapidly. Mm -hmm. And a parallel trend with that is what we've talked about before is civil religion. And, And that's not referring to anything organized, but it's kind of the default religious assumptions of a culture. And I use the phrase cultural Christianity um, kind of as a parallel to that. And it's, you know, why we swear on a Bible versus something else if we're taking an oath or, you know, we, we kind of incorporate religious symbolism in the public square. And so I believe that with the decline of mainline Protestantism is also the decline of civil religion and a high percentage of what many, you know, uh, people who have researched religion, they call it the rise of the nuns and not N-U-N-S. Yeah. Um, yeah, great. That, that's a very different... <laughs> like a great 80s thriller. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those ideology graphics we need AJ to make for us. Um, but the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, people who, when when asked on a religious survey how they self-identify, they say none. Like they're either agnostic, atheist, or you know they, they just don't really have an answer to it. That number has skyrocketed. It has gone, uh, you know, I mean, one thing I saw from like 5% to 30-something percent in a generation or less. Um, so that that has just... Uh, massively increased, and a significant driver of that are people who historically would have been a part of a mainline Protestant denomination, self-identified as a cultural Christian. But if we could dig a little deeper, I postulate probably weren't that involved, probably didn't go to church that frequently, but it was still part of their cultural identity. And over time, they just dropped a label because it functionally hasn't been part of their life for a long time anyway. And now they're formally just not identifying as going there. And then with that, the need to incorporate religious language in the public square is also declining. Mm-hmm. So that, to me, is an obvious and clear trend. Whatever else may be out there, um, that's certainly something that is happening at a rapid place. Okay, so you talked about mainline Protestantism. What would be another big umbrella? Evangelicalism? Yeah, I'll use the word evangelicalism, and this is a complex term. So worldwide, there's actually more Pentecostals than evangelicals, mm-hmm. but in most surveys you get... Uh, Pentecostals are a subset of evangelicals. So there's, you know, all of this kind of stuff, once you try to break it down, is complicated. And then you ask the question, who fits where? So a great example, where does the Anglican Church in North America fit? You know, they're they're definitely um, evangelical um, on a lot of the doctrinal things, but I don't know that, you know, I imagine a lot of our Anglican friends, and I know we have several listeners, I'd be interested to hear from you how you would Mm self-identify, you know, whether you would use that label or not. So it is complex, because I think there's probably a lot of people out there that are in other denominations, but are evangelical in their own personal belief, just like there's many people at an evangelical church. And this is where really a lot of the 
um, Barna survey certificate um, survey data um, has identified a lot of people that will claim to be evangelical, but then when they ask them follow up questions, it's shocking how few of those people actually hold evangelical commitments. So you know, very complex once you drill into all of it. But that the top line is that evangelical identification is pretty steady. And in fact, I saw one thing that the year around the time I was born in the 80s to today, that number is about the same. It peaked, it went up in the 90s and it's declined since then, but there hasn't been um, a ton of change. So if you think about it from that perspective of evangelicals are about the same as they were in the 80s, you know that, that's probably not the narrative that I hear a lot of people saying mm-hmm. that view like this rapid collapse. Um, one of Ryan Burge's data that I thought was really interesting was the age cohort. Um, so they kind of went through different people based on when they were born that had the steepest decline in identification of evangelical are the people that were born in the 1940s. Wow. That doesn't like, doesn't fit any of the stories that, you know, we would hear. 70 year olds. Yeah. Yeah, They're the ones who are dropping the label, (laughs) you know, and actually the younger generations, um, there is a little bit of a decline, but it's like one or two percentage points. It's Mm. like way lower than it would have been. Now that's in the background of younger generations of people are less likely to be religious. So if you could go back in time, people that were born in the 1940s, there's a much higher percentage of them that would claim some type of Christian identification. And, you know, and so that's certainly to be the case versus somebody who's 20. Um, it's way more likely that they, they are a minority in their age court, a cohort of people claiming any type of religious identification. But the ones that would say they're evangelical haven't declined as much um, relative to the ones who were born in the 1940s. So just interesting, right? It's, it's a complicated story of what's actually going on behind the scenes here. Um, another thing that he looks at that I thought was interesting is looking at change in affiliation. And so the two surveys that he's drawing from are the Cooperative Election Survey, or CES, um, and the second one is the General Social Survey, um, GSS, and both of those are, are reputable. Um, so this stat comes from the GSS survey, and it's looking through, I think, 2018. So post-COVID, this might look a little bit different, but it was looking at... Um, change in affiliation. And it was something like about 75% of, uh, or 73% of people born evangelical stay evangelical. And um, what, I, what I found most fascinating is I think next to Jewish, that was the highest of any religious mm-hmm. affiliation. And the number, the percentage of people leaving evangelical relative to becoming evangelical was greater, I'm sorry, was lesser. So more people by percentage were coming in from every single other religious group, including no religion, uh, by percentage than were leaving evangelical. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem with that, and if you're wondering why is there still decline, it's because um, just the overall size of evangelicalism is higher, you know? And so, but still, I, I found that to be really interesting. So somebody born with no religion was more likely to become evangelical then somebody who was evangelical was likely to go to somebody born no religion. Um, you know, so it, it just, you know, it, it's a complex story of what's really going on. So is there a long-term decline? Certainly in the last 20 years. And I would imagine that once there's new survey data out post-COVID, we'll probably see uh, an even stronger dip. So I'm not, I'm not banking on the fact that there's not one. But I also think, you know, as I've looked at a lot of different stuff, I mean, going back to the 50s, the, the percentage of people that are evangelical has been pretty consistent around 25%. And I haven't seen anything that makes me think that's going to be a rapid change mm-hmm. um, from, from what's already there. So if you self-identify as evangelical, 
um, about the same amount of people who've left the faith, left your expression of the faith, have also joined your expression. Yeah, percentage. Of the faith. So we got to go with percentage um, because raw numbers might be different, right. you know. But uh, there, I, I think it was like um, somebody who grew up mainline Protestant. Fourteen percent of them become evangelical, and it's something like eight percent of evangelical become mainline Protestant. Mm-hmm. Um, and now there's just a lot more at this point, probably. Well, actually, I don't know on the mainline Protestant ones. That would be interesting to see the raw data. Um, but same holds true for Catholic, for you know, not not Jewish, but the other the other groups that holds true for. So here's you know, I, why do I say all of this? I think there is a narrative out there that evangelicalism is rapidly collapsing, and I think there are some very important, significant things that are happening that are changes. Mm -hmm. But what I don't think is happening is the rapid collapse narrative. I I would say change, fracturing, cultural headwinds, all of those are probably applicable terms to describe what's happening. But at one level, the, the number of people is probably not that different. What is different is the surrounding culture in which evangelicals live. And so if you were to go back in time 50 years ago, evangelical was a subset of a broader Christian culture that had multiple expressions. Well, now the broader Christian culture is rapidly collapsing, and evangelical is you know, kind of a, a holdout as a minority group of a strong faith, along with others, some, um, some percentage of Catholic, and, and, and you know, again, I'm sure many mainline Protestants. But that group would have been a majority and now is mm-hmm. becoming not just a minority, but probably on its way towards being... Um, you know, a 25% minority, not like a 45% minority. And it's all happening in real time. It's impossible to know what the future holds. But that's a different story. You know, is it evangelicals falling apart from within, or is it that cultural Christian Christianity is collapsing and evangelicals going to have to learn how to exist without um, the, the broader cultural support that it used to have? Uh, th- those are two different stories. There's probably truth to both of them, but I, I would put it more on the broader cultural change um, while evangelicalism is maybe slight decline and steady, mm-hmm. um, is probably a more realistic story, which in my mind actually changes some of how the church needs to respond. And before we look a little bit more deeply at the underlying issues, not every, like you just said, not every denomination is in decline or holding steady. There are a couple that are growing somewhat rapidly. So Ronnie Stark's thesis, and I want to pull him back in, is that churches that exist or denominations in higher tension grow more rapidly. Hmm. And so, you know, going back to those mainline Protestants for whom there was very little tension historically, the Baptists and Methodists, they were the OG evangelicals, you know, they were the original and they grew really rapidly in, you know, like the 17, late 1700s through the 1800s. I mean, those groups were like wildfire. Methodists in particular, early American Methodism was crazy in its growth rate. But what happens is they eventually get to a certain point where they want to fit in with the rest of the culture, so they reduce tension. And a lot of times, you know, if I'm just thinking very practically, a lot of times that's not entirely bad. Like some of that tension is probably unnecessary, you know, and it's it's not really, I mean, I've ever been a part of a fiery church, you know, you can have some tension. You're like, we don't actually need to do that. That's an <laughs> unnecessary wall that we've erected that that keeps us out of culture. So it doesn't mean that all tension reduction is bad, but what can start to happen is it becomes a long-term impulse of how to navigate culture. And so what Stark charts is that um, you have these groups that take off, that grow rapidly, but then over time, 
they become a victim of their own success and they want to start reducing tension with the surrounding culture, they get on this train of reducing tension and they start to decline only to be replaced by a new rapidly growing kind of upstart evangelical sect to, to take their place. And so you can, you know, to, to use Methodism as an example, you have this fiery early American Methodism. It probably peaked around 1850. Um, compromise starts to set in. Then you have the holiness movement that takes off around that same time um, and spurs multiple different denominations. And then that turns into the Pentecostal movement, which turns into the charismatic and the third wave Pentecostal movement. You know, in each one mm-hmm. of these, um, you, you can maybe find some elements of this story. Um, so if you look at today, kind of pulling that back into your question, um, the churches that are growing rapidly are the Assemblies of God, which is the largest Pentecostal, denom- or, yeah, Pentecostal denomination, the Presbyterian Church of America, which is a conservative reform denomination, and then non-denominational, and then plus Pentecostals of all stripes. So mm-hmm. that's where the church is growing. Where it's rapidly declining is mainline Protestants, Episcopal, United Methodist, PCUSA, groups like that. Um, I saw some British data that was even more interesting to me because these are people I know a little bit better. Vineyard Church, New Frontiers, um, Elim, Pentecostal, like those guys are all growing at like 5%, but um, the, the more established traditional churches are in a state of decline. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that that holds true. So um, I haven't done like some massive latitudinal, you know, survey on this, but everything I've seen um, supports what Stark's thesis mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. And that is that confessional groups tend to do fine and they tend to grow. But as a whole, there's cultural change taking place around us um, in which those confessional groups, they used to live in tension in society, but the tension wasn't necessarily between very basic Christian identity and non-Christian identity. It might have been how that Christian identity is expressed. Like you just go back and think, 150 years ago, intense debates on infant baptism, you know, and that that was like the thing, right? And today it's like, do you love Jesus? You know, is the Bible real? Is God real? Like it, it, our debates are different because we're living in a different cultural era to where that broader Christian framework has collapsed rapidly around us, but the confessional, kind of more vibrant confessional groups have actually held their own through that collapse as a general principle. It's just they're going to have to learn how to exist in a new and strange world. Hmm. So maybe to summarize what you've said so far, and then we'll kind of round out with looking at some of the issues behind the scenes here. There, you know, that that narrative around the imminent collapse of the church in the West is overblown and actually needs more nuance. That there are some denominations that have declined. Certainly, there are some that are hold, holding steady, but there are some that are actually growing and thriving in today's climate. And some of that comes down to, and these are meta themes that you know wouldn't apply universally across the board. But some of that comes down to the amount of kind of cultural tension that maybe some denominations have alleviated and capitulated to broader culture, and some have tried to maintain a gospel witness in the increasingly secularized culture around them. And ironically, or I guess biblically it's not ironic, but maybe contrary to popular belief, that the denominations maintaining that gospel tension are actually the ones that are um, attractive in, in one sense, providing an alternative to secular culture, which we've seen the secular experiment failing on so many levels. Um, so why don't you take us into maybe some of the issues under the surface here and where this would intersect with our lives practically? Yeah. So let me start off. Where does it intersect practically? When, when you talk about survey data, numbers represent people, and that, that still tells a really dynamic story. And you know, to, to take my thing from earlier, 
Uh, if the evangelical retention rate is 73%, to put that in real terms, what that means is if you are average, one out of every four of your close college friends that were walking with God with you are no longer walking with God today. There's no way that that doesn't affect you in a deeply personal way. And I think that's part of it is understanding what's going on around us. There, there is a difference between um, the, the way that that impacts me on an emotional, personal level, and then what story does the overall picture tell me? And being able to, I don't, I, I don't want to say disassociate those two because they go together, but distinguish what's what in that. Or, you know, maybe say it another way, if you grew up in a family of four people, then statistically it is likely that one of the four is no longer identifying um, either as a Christian or at least an evangelical Christian. So that's, you know, that, that's a sobering thing. And now the balance to that is um, if, you know, somebody grew up in a non-Christian household, um, you know, one out of every, I don't know what this would be like, um, maybe one out of every seven would have become evangelical in that same amount of time. So there's people coming in just as there's people leaving. Um, but, you know, that that's that whole, you know, the collapse we can feel, you know, where it feels so real to us is you hear surveys, you see surveys, and then you're thinking of all the people that you know that, of course, you're saddened about and aware of. And um, and it doesn't mean that everybody left evangelical, left Jesus or Christianity. I mean, there's plenty of other options mm -hmm. for being Christian, but I'm just trying to like paint the picture of what it feels like to be somebody is you're thinking, we used to all be one big happy family and now we're not anymore. What happened? Um, that's, a, that's actually a very healthy question to ask. And there's a lot of different ways of answering it. But my, my plea throughout this episode is don't collapse it into some simplistic, naive narrative. Um, recognize that it's a multi-layered, nuanced story that um, there's a lot of different factors to it. And we need to be careful that we don't um, just blindly kind of accept this is what's happening. Because that's where, as you said, Mick, we start applying um, the wrong answers to the, mm -hmm. the question. So I would say there are, are kind of maybe three big changes that are taking place. And, and this is my interpretation. So if everyone else gets a narrative, I'll get one. Um, first is the decline of mainline Protestantism. That's what is collapsing and cult cultural Christianity or Christianity as the civil religion of the United States. That is what I think we can say with confidence is collapsing rapidly around us. And I don't see any sign anywhere of that changing, mm -hmm. barring something crazy. The second thing that is changing, and I think corresponds at one level, is the decline in the public perception of evangelical or evangelical and Pentecostal charismatic. And so what's not changing is that necessarily the statistical number of people who are evangelical in their beliefs, but the way that that's perceived in the surrounding culture, that is changing in a significant way. So for me to identify as an evangelical is very different in the year 2024 than it was in the year 2000. Um, as far as what I can expect at a cultural level um, in broader society. As we mentioned before, that's going to vary greatly whether or not I live in Alabama versus if I live in New York City. Um, so there are places where that hasn't changed at all, but on a kind of macro level in the United States, that perception has changed. <clears throat> now, there, uh, the third thing I'll say as well um, that I think is changing is the fracturing of what actually is evangelical. And I don't know that it's ever been one monolithic group, but I, I see out of the social shock of maybe the last, I don't know, five, six years, um, I, I see there being a, a lot of fracturing. And mm -hmm. as far as I can tell, this is anecdotal, but working with a lot of churches from a, a variety of different traditions, 
what I hear consistently is this fracturing is not taking place at a denominational level, but it's actually at the church level. So most churches are having this happen internally. Um, and, and so fracturing within evangelicalism is a very real thing. And I think some of it is is disagreement on how should the church act or respond to a changing social landscape. Mm-hmm. So I've already hit the first one, decline of mainline Protestantism. Um, the second one, uh, the public perception of evangelical, what's changing there? And I think there's three things. Um, I, I think first, it's uh, what I've said is the changing culture, and this is the dissonance between um, what an evangelical Pentecostal might believe and what the surrounding culture believes. And that's why we spend a lot of time diagnosing secularism as a religion, because it's mm-hmm. helpful to see the tenets, to see the moral system, to see all the different facets that go into that belief system. And you can see right away how there's going to be a lots of points of controversy um, with somebody who holds an evangelical belief. And so, you know, what, what you really have here is a, a difficult interreligious dialogue that's not going great, you know? So that's that's one driving thing. And I, I am about to say something that's probably controversial, but um, I continue to believe that that's the most powerful shaping force. Um, and I don't want to minimize the next two things I'm going to say, because I think those are also important. But I, I do think it's the most powerful shaping force is the fact that, you know, many of the stuff that, you know, the scandals or political stuff um, that I'm going to talk about here in a second that are impacting this, um, they fit within a broader cultural mm-hmm. change. And mm-hmm. so I think it gives it um, new weight. And I don't even know that the new weight is bad. I think some of those things probably need to be addressed. And maybe the change in culture is shining a spotlight on it in a way that God is using to force the church to address it. So it, it, I'm not even framing it entirely as a bad thing per se, um, but I'm saying it is what it is, you know, and I think it's a driving factor. But I've already given you my second ones, uh, second and third. Um, all the different abuse scandals, I think, is another one. And, you know, we're in a what I think is a important reckoning on the one hand of just looking at where has church or other institutions, where have we tolerated or permitted you know, all kinds of terrible things, and especially with sexual abuse, but other areas as well. Um, so that's happening in the background and um, in an interconnected world. Uh, you know, more of, more of that is at the forefront of people's uh, minds. And then the third one is the um, uh, political shifts and the political, politicalization of religious terminology. And um, I, I think a lot of the public perception, people didn't really care too much until recent election cycles where evangelical became a voting block rather than a confessional group. Uh, there's a great uh, uh, church historian, a guy named Thomas Kidd, who used to be at Baylor and is now at Midwest um, uh, Baptist, sorry, I can't remember the, the seminary in Kansas City. And he has a book um, asking the question, what is an evangelical? And the, the most typical answer is from David Bevington, who's a um, historian, and he was also at Baylor. Uh, for a while, and he has what's called Bebbington's Quadrilateral, which is Biblicism, Crucicentrism, Conversionism, and Activism. So in other words, the Bible is the authority, um, a heavy emphasis on the atoning work of Jesus, um, the call to for people to be saved and to come to Christ, and then um, the belief that the church should be active in the world. That's what makes somebody an evangelical. When I, If I were to go ask somebody on the street you know, what makes an evangelical, they're probably going to talk to me about voting data, mm-hmm, you know? And, mm-hmm. uh, and so there's a challenge there is because you have one group of people who um, really, when they think of all of this, they're actually not thinking about religion or religious change. They're thinking about politics. And so their interpretation is based on politics. But then you have those of us for whom this is an accurate religious self-identification. 
And I'm not thinking about politics at all when I think about what it means to be evangelical. And so, you know, that that's driving uh, perception. And in a lot of ways, even a lot of the stuff that's being written is being written from a political standpoint, not being written from a religious standpoint. It doesn't invalidate, I mean, some of it's bad, but it doesn't necessarily invalidate that as a line of inquiry. Um, But the flip side of that is for those of us interested at it from a religious belief standpoint, we got to be careful what we're reading because... I I need to know kind of what somebody's vantage point is um, because that's going to really affect the way that they research it, the labels that they use. Like, you know, the reason I say that as an example is I doubt very many of the political articles that are written on evangelical, most of them aren't considering Bevington's quadrilateral. They're not asking questions about, um, you know, what actually defines evangelicals in America. They're just purely looking at how people self-identify at the ballot box. And they're typically limiting it to just white white Americans. You know, they're not looking at evangelicalism as an international community or a strong percentage in the United States that are non-white and how they behave. And so they're kind of isolating this subset of evangelical. And then you have correlation and causation. You know, is it um, the fact that that there is such a heavy emphasis in the South? What drives what? Is it religion that drives politics or politics? You know, I'm not, that's not my expertise. Um, I'm just pointing out the fact that if you look at it as a political thing, it's going to lead you to a whole different line of inquiry than if you look at it as a religious terminology. And you tend to to either drill into or overlook data based on which one you're most interested in. And to that point, there's been a lot of realignment in in the West, in America in particular, uh, that I think has been disillusioning for some evangelicals, confusing maybe at best, where... um, you know, my, my friends who were my colleagues who were just kind of what you might label normal evangelical, that quadrilateral, Bevington's quadrilateral, quadrilateral now uh, have this like strong nationalistic flair. And we've talked about yeah. nationalism before. So what, what are some of those kind of realignments that have happened that that might be a helpful um, uh, a helpful thing to consider for some people who've just kind of wondered, you know, at their friends and colleagues, family members who seem to have kind of realigned their beliefs along some other uh, talking points and narratives. Yeah, so this, I, I'm going to say five strands that I see. Um, I am sure that somebody somewhere influenced me on this, but I don't recall what that is or remember any one specific, particular person to cite. So I gave you all those names at the beginning. We'll just give them all credit, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> uh, but but this is this is at least my, my um, um, framework is... I'll give them. I'll give the five. The normal, uh, or traditional. Um, second is nationalistic. Third is the exvangelical or progressive. Fourth is neo-liturgical, and the fifth is revivalistic. And these are five strands that I see. Now, I think there were probably elements of this that have always been there. So I'm not going to make the case that you know 2020 rolled around and mm-hmm. suddenly this happened. Um, I, I would probably instead say that some significant social events in our nation forced some things that were already there to the surface in a more extreme way, and it is causing people to re-sift through how they understand the world. That would be my take on it. Mm-hmm. So normal, in my mind, is that Bebbington quadrilateral, and I would guess, I would hypothesize that this is still the vast majority of evangelicals. Um, and this is from my years of pastoral ministry. Most people aren't caught up in all this other stuff. They're just you know, good, God-fearing, church-going people. And that's how they live. That's how they see things. What's interesting is their pastor may come and go, you know, and a lot of people might've had a pastor. They might've had one of all five of these strands of pastors over the years. Their denomination may kind of turn one way or the other over time. Most people aren't thinking like that. They 
just want God, want to lead a healthy life, and that's who they are. Mm-hmm. The nationalistic is certainly um, in the last, you know, I don't know, five, six years, seven years has become a major flavor. And there there has definitely been, um, you know, a trend, I would say, with even some consolidation in some certain churches where they've leaned into a conservative political identity or a nationalistic political identity. And I, I'm not talking here about, um, you know, Christians who are just patriotic about their, con- their country. I'm, I'm talking about a more distinct subset right. of even how they understand their faith. And I think it's really important to separate those two. Um, but that's definitely there. I, I, from my own experience, it's not that large of a group of people. I think that group gets the most press mm-hmm. um, because, once again, they, they have the most exposure in kind of some broader political narratives. From my experience in the church, um, maybe it's just the circles I run in, but I don't know that it's as large as is actually made out to be, but it certainly does exist. On the other end of the spectrum, and, and you know, I use the word ex-evangelical because, uh, <laughs> you know, the irony is most of them wouldn't identify by the very title ex-evangelical as they're not evangelical. But this is a, a different group that is pulling the other direction, um, you know, to some of these political splits and is notable, you know, and a lot of them end up becoming the nuns or um, the NONES um, or moving into mainline Protestant or something like that. Um, but there still is that strand that's taking place in churches. Um, the fourth is the um, liturgical or neoliturgical. And um, this is something I think a lot of people who have maintained their doctrinal convictions um, and even the core of their faith, but they're finding a new expression um, um, in liturgy versus kind of our high church versus low church. Um, I see a lot of that going on. And then revivalistic, you know, and I think that continues to be the case. The charismatic awakenings, um, I mean, that's been going on for a long time now, but it really continues and, mm-hmm. and it continues in a lot of churches. And so, you know, why do I say all of that? I, I think what I find is in most churches, um, this is my hypothesis, um, whether, you know, somebody can research it a little bit more. Um, but my hypothesis is that seven to 10 years ago, all these people were together in one church. And what I think has happened in most churches, at least that I know of, over the last 10 years, there has been an internal fracturing that's also taken place. And so, you know, tying this all in together, what is it when we talk about things changing, what's actually changing? Number one, the decline of cultural Christianity. That's the, to me, that's the top storyline. Number two, the internal fracturing of evangelical and largely or often people that would retain the label, but now are, have different ideas of how to respond to culture. You know, what's the right approach? And we could do another episode going through each one of those five maybe implicit to those groups is they have diagnosed a problem and they are providing a solution with their approach. And that's happening now to where I don't, I'm not making the case that it was one monolithic group 10 years ago, but I'm just saying Mm -hmm. that now, you know, that fracturing is um, driving a lot of dynamism and tension, I think. Um, And and I I think what's happening, and this would be my hypothesis for the future is um, where that has been really chaotic the last many years uh, things seem to be settling down in the sense of uh, people are more clear on where they fit with that. Um, but there was a, a period of time where it felt like everything was up in the air and you just had no idea who was where and what direction they were pulling. It'd be an interesting study to overlay those five, um, not splits, but those five expressions of evangelical over the five Jewish groups that were kind of prominent in Jesus' oh, yeah. <laughs> day, the Essenes, the Zealots, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians. It'd be an interesting, because they're all a response to culture, right? Yeah, and what, what do we do, you know? And 
And I, I think, though, what that doesn't say is that evangelicalism is collapsing. I think what it does say is it's sorting itself out to figure out how do we respond to a rapidly changing culture. Mm-hmm. Um, that, to me, would be the narrative that I, I think we have to ask. And um, you know, and so what, what we've done a lot of uh, in our podcast is like throwing out ideas of how do we respond to that. That's the whole point of doing this book review. Of I, I find it to be an intellectually interesting question, but more so a spiritually important question mm-hmm. of how at this time in history, how do we live faithfully under the authority of Christ, standing on scripture as the church of the people of God in this cultural moment and hour? Um, what is the posture we're supposed to take? How do we respond? And what I'm grateful for, and this is, I'll, I'll end on a message of hope um, as we kick off a new year, is um, I, I see a lot more strength and resiliency in Christians. I see a lot more awareness where I think um, so many of us, myself included, were just caught off guard by by cultural trends. And I've referenced Mal- Malcolm Gladwell before, who talks about these tipping points where these are all trends that have been going on forever. So I think it's a total misnomer to think they just came out mm-hmm, of nowhere. Mm-hmm. But I do think we've hit some tipping points where suddenly it feels like everything's changing overnight. In retrospect, you can be like, oh yeah, that was obvious that was gonna happen at some point, or that that's a long-term trend that's driven us to where we are today. But it, it sure felt like every cha- everything changed suddenly. We can probably point to three or four or five cultural events over the last 10, 15 years um, that have led to that. And then what that does is that drills into us as churches or denominations or even as people we are now kind of fracturing and trying to figure out what's our way forward through all of this. And and I think that's where everything becomes really important because we want to live faithfully. We want to follow Jesus. And, um, you know, I mean, for me, it's when I read Debbie Quadrilateral, I'm thrilled to carry the evangelical label. Um, or if somebody doesn't like that, give me the Pentecostal label, you know, so it's, I'm, I'm all for it. But I, I think there's a lot of uh, compelling stories to tell. And I think um, within that, that means we have to both confront our failures. We have to look at where do we need to change, but we also have to look at where do we need to stay steady and strong? Um, where do we need to stand on our convictions? You know, all that is tied into this story um, and it's complex to sort out. Maybe a good place to stop for today. And we've got uh, great things coming up as we continue to dig into these themes, which has been a theme for this whole season. Again, how do we as believers navigate this kind of shifting cultural landscape? And that's why we're picking up James K. Smith's book, How Not to Be Secular. Is that the right title? That's right. Uh, So feel free to grab that and uh, follow along as we dive into that over the next couple of weeks. Thanks, as always, for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time on Ideology. Ideology.